Today's episode is brought to you by Khadija Queen's Anodyne, a collection of poems at once formally dynamic and serenely personal that asks us to recognize the echoes of history that litter the landscape of our bodies as we navigate a complex terrain of survival and longing. Writes Alex Lemon, Khadija Queen's poems are fire and sacred song. This is writing that makes the hardship of being alive transcendent. I recommend this book, Ilya Kaminsky says, to anyone who ever had a child or a parent, whoever had a body or loved, to anyone who has ever been sick or tried to sleep a good night's sleep and failed and tried again. Anodyne is out now from Tin House. Today's discussion with poet Lauren Camp is, among many other things, about the gap between the subject or object we want to portray and the representation we actually create, and how that gap is even more apparent when we are making art in relationship to other art, in this case, writing poetry in relationship to visual art. We talked today about her latest book, Took House, in relation to ekphrastic poetry, but we also touch on two other projects of hers that also deal with gaps, with absences, and with silences. Her previous collection, 100 Hungers, which imagines her way into the real childhood of her father in Baghdad before he was a refugee, a childhood he would never speak about, and also Camp's as-of-yet-uncollected series of dementia poems, poems that grapple in language with the ways her father's own ability to create language was changing in old age. For the bonus audio archive, Lauren reads from both of these projects that, like her work with visual art, write into a gap and yet strive for representation nonetheless. Today, instead of talking about all the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers, beyond the bonus audio archive, the spiel many of you are familiar with from one episode to the next. I wanted to instead alert you to a major change in my life and to the ways it affects the show. Many of you know that I've been striving for the last four or five years to make hosting this show my main job not just in terms of the hours put in, which by that metric it already is, but as financial support. That has been a complicated calculus, as helping the podcast grow has also caused my regular source of income to shrink. If it weren't for the pandemic, I would have said it would be premature to make the leap from juggling two lives to fully focusing on hosting the podcast. But after two decades like so many other people around the country and around the world right now, my job is ending. Fortunately, it is not a situation where I need to panic. I can give it some time as I increase my efforts to grow support for the show, to see if my efforts bear fruit. But I am leaping into a gap, hopefully leaping across a gap. And that is where you come in. Right now, somewhere between 1% and 2% of listeners are also supporters. My goal is to try to get that up to between 2 and 3% by 2022. 
by the beginning of 2021 to create momentum that might suggest that continuing to dedicate my time to Between the Covers is something I could sustain. So if you've been a longtime listener and have been thinking about supporting the show, this would be the time, more than any other, to show that you value what you hear. You can do so on a per-episode basis and enjoy all the benefits of being an ongoing supporter, including joining discussions about which future guests to invite, emails about further avenues to explore after each conversation, the bonus audio, and a wide variety of Tin House merchandise. You can look at all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. A mere $1 an episode or $24 a year is the entry level to join a community of ongoing Between the Covers listener supporters. If you prefer a one-time contribution, you can also do this via PayPal by going to tinhouse.com support. Obviously, I'm not alone in this situation. In fact, you may be in a similar one or even a far worse one. If you're a fan of the show who can't contribute financially, I hope you'll consider sharing your love of the show on social media, leaving a review on iTunes, and generally supporting the fall campaign to get the show on solid footing. So again, to join the Between the Covers community, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers, or for one-time contributions, tinhouse.com slash support. And now, my conversation with poet Lauren Camp. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet Lauren Camp. Prior to becoming a poet, Lauren Camp was a visual artist. Her art has appeared everywhere from the American Jazz Museum and the Delta Blues Museum to the Fiber Art Biennial in Chieri, Italy, and is part of the permanent collections of many public institutions, from St. Vincent's Children's Hospital of Indiana to the U.S. embassies in Ashgabat, Turkmenistan, and Bamako, Mali. For 15 years, Lauren Camp was also a producer for Santa Fe Public Radio, and host of the show Audio Saucepan, described as a delicious one-hour journey through poems, philosophical fragments, and literary excerpts 
intermixed with jazz, spirituals, world percussion, and other sounds. A show with multiple moods, a saucy potluck of reason and tempo. Lauren Camp is also the author of four previous collections of poetry. These include 100 Hungers, winner of the Dorset Prize, and a finalist for the Arab American Book Award, and Turquoise Door, Finding Mabel Dodge Luhan in New Mexico, a finalist for the New Mexico-Arizona Book Award. Her poems have appeared in the Los Angeles Review, Pleiades, Beloit Poetry Journal, and Witness, among many others. They've been translated into Turkish, Mandarin, Arabic, and Spanish, and Camp has twice served as a guest editor for World Literature Today for the issues dedicated to jazz poetry and the intersection of visual art and poetry, and also a guest editor at Malpais Review for their issue dedicated to the poetry of Iraq. Camp lives in New Mexico and teaches through the state's Poetry Out Loud program, the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum's Art and Leadership program at Santa Fe Community College, and through her own community workshops. Lauren Camp is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her newest collection, just out from Tupelo Press, called Took House. Publishers Weekly calls Took House a stirring, original collection that delves into hunger and longing, asking the reader to linger in the fraught space between control and the loss of it. D.M. O'Connor for Rhino Poetry calls Took House minimal yet soaring, cemented in time and form yet fluid. There are love poems, avant-garde experiments, prose chunks, free verse, and brick-solid couplets. Hawks, owls, coyotes, and ravens mix with Georgia O'Keeffe, Donald Judd, and Annie Leibowitz. Doubtlessly, Camp is an artisan working with culmination. Each poem stands sound and true. Finally, poet Allison Bennis-White says, in Lauren Camp's Took House, we are enveloped in a poetry both precise and mysterious, intimate and sublime. Reading through these poems, I was reminded of the tenant that poetry is not like the interior life, but is the interior life the thing itself made flesh via language. Give me your flowered ear, Camp writes in one poem, and in another, I will speak of the seams of desire, the practice, and even the ceiling. Here is a poet articulating her human existence, the tentacles of love, inebriation, visual art. Here is a particular heart and mind removing its shield in order to commune to help us see the world again, more deeply and more strangely. And reader, I am grateful. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lauren Camp. Delighted to be here, David. Thank you so much. So before we talk about Took House in particular, I thought we could start with a discussion of ekphrastic poetry more generally, poetry that's engaged with visual art, not only because there are a lot of poems in Took House that are ekphrastic, poems that engage with George O'Keefe or Robert Rauschenberg or Donald Judd or Eva Hess and many others, but also because from what I've read, you, you came to poetry somewhat accidentally when you were a visual artist and that the first texts you were writing were almost accidental, ekphrastic texts. So I was hoping maybe we could start with your origin story as a poet 
how that came from the visual art world, but also how you continue to engage with the visual art world. I was making visual art. Uh, my medium was fiber, fabric and thread. And a lot of my subject matter, but not all of it, was jazz. All, all of these things are actually important because they all impact how I learned to become a poet. Um, so I was creating visual art, wall hangings, and writing. At some point in the process, some years in, I began writing uh, wall text for the artwork as, as the pieces would uh, be exhibited, be asked, invited to, um, to be on walls in art centers and museums and shows, the curators of the shows would ask for wall text, which they called blurbs. That is what it's called in that world. And, um, <laughs> and I wrote those blurbs with the intention of, I guess, describing the artwork for some, some artists in that uh, medium, they would write about the materials they used, um, perhaps how many stitches or how many, um, how many spools of thread or how long it took. That never interested me. So I began to write just these things that I just called blurbs for lack of any other term. And at some point, um, I wouldn't even be able to give you a, a year, but maybe it was like the early 2000s. Um, somebody saw a solo exhibit that I had in Kentucky and called me over and said, I know you made the artwork. Who wrote the poems? It's probably and the I, first time a blurb has been, I mean, the first time <laughs> blurb and poem have been put together. Um, I said, I was so confused. I mean, really, I was very, very uh, lost in that question. I said, uh, there are no poems here. And that viewer, art appreciator, took me over to uh, the piece that she pointed out to me was a portrait I had done of Billie Holiday in fabric and thread. And she said, here, this piece, who wrote this poem? And she pointed to my blurb. And I said, oh, that, that's a blurb. I wrote it. <laughs> and, and after that, I mean, this is truly a, it's, it's like nearly an embarrassing story of how to come to poetry from the backside of it really knowing nothing in some ways. After that, I came back to New Mexico, heard one of my friends talk about a poetry group she was in, and I sort of sidled over and said, could I be in that? What is that? Could I be in that? And she said, well, this group is closed, but I know of another. And so I had to sort of come to poetry from the center of it, in a way. Well, I suspect a lot of people who who either haven't tried ekphrastic poetry or haven't thought a lot about ekphrastic poetry might think it is simply an attempt to describe the visual art as best as one could. But often it isn't that at all and can be quite oblique to or even decoupled from the act of description. And I, I'm thinking of Jory Graham's description of ekphrasis for her and where she said, a painting is, in a poem a painting run through an imagination and a spirit other than the painters. 
It is not trying to describe the painting. It is trying to speak from it. Of course, this isn't a definitive definition of ekphrastic poetry, but rather the definition for Graham. But I wondered how that struck you and if you had a certain philosophy or orientation when you're engaging with visual art poetically. Yeah, I think I agree with that quote uh, in great part. And I might even go further and say that for me, sometimes it doesn't even have to be to speak from it, but to speak underneath it or above it or to give a different side to it. I have no interest in writing precisely what I see. I, I want to take that artwork and have it help me figure out something more, maybe something about me, maybe something about a particular time. But often what I'm doing with the art that I'm drawn to is trying to figure out why, why this piece, why this, this work, why this style, why these colors, why this emptiness, why this whatever, why this, for a lot of the works in Tookhouse, why this repetition? The first section of the book is called The Exact Color of Welcome, and the first poem within the first section is called Find the Color of Survival. And the notion of welcome or survival having a color points to the gap between language and perception, at least for me. It seems like in any act of representation, there is that gap, how to perceive something and then translate it into a word or a painting or a dance. But with ekphrastic poems, it feels like the gap is more foregrounded because one is making a representation from another representation, a poem from a painting that itself was trying to represent something. Is that gap what you're reaching for with these titles, the exact color of welcome and find the color of survival? And if not, then tell us about the impulse to insert the notion of color here. I think... As a visual artist, or a one-time visual artist at any rate, I think in color and texture, what for me is, is very familiar and common, but what seems to be not for others. Um, survival seems like I could say it has a color even though I can't tell you right now what that color is, it just has a color. It's not a, it's not so much a feeling as a, as a tangible thing, which I think color is. Could, could we here uh, find the color of survival? Sure. Find the color of survival. I want to talk about what I believe is beautiful and this is complicated by all the oil of that year. The muscle of my mind was worn out. I was painting everything at once, painting until the impulse died and began again. I tended to let days scatter to bruises on canvas, absolute color, the temperature I tolerated, and my hands the only source of compassion. My eyes stayed on the symbols of other artists' corners and saw as they spread to a world that existed through another parking lot, a skein of grasses. Four shades of green could have and bend the eye. 
Even in excess, I always see the most trivial details. Even then, I was always sure a return to heaven's brightness. These are the matters for which there are no limits. How far imagination commands, and I splendored over it. I starved to praise, contented in the ways of light and bed and silhouette, because I had sacrificed to muddy palms and art inscribed with truth and the dominion of hues, the breathless blue. I believe you'll see in every image pleasure and 20 different senses. Every past in the right and wrong place, so many times no one can tell if they saw us. A woman tying a black apron brought the cutlery to our table. At home, I lifted a broad brush to each sorrow. One day soon, every form will be transparent. But first, with you, I'm looking at even what I cannot stand to see. You've been listening to Lauren Camp read from her latest collection, Took House. So I restrained myself to one a question of epic length, so forgive forgive this one. But one one of my favorite essays about the gap in representation is an essay by Ann Carson called "Variations on the Right to Remain Silent." And part of what she discusses in it is the philosophy of the painter Francis Bacon. And your use of color made me think of that essay, but so did your epigraph by the artist Eva Hess, which mentions edges. Your epigraph says, my right or wrong isn't to have a pure or fine edge. And when I read that, I thought of Ann Carson on Francis Bacon, where she says, he is a representational painter. His subjects are people, birds, dogs, grass, sand, water, himself. And what he wants to capture of these subjects is, he says, their reality or essence or the facts by facts, he doesn't mean to make a copy of the subject as a photograph would, but rather to create a sensible form that will translate directly to your nervous system the same sensation as the subject. And then later she says, stops and silence of various kinds seem to be available to Francis Bacon with the process of his painting. For instance, in his subject matter, when he chooses to depict people screaming in a medium that cannot transmit sound or in his use of color, which is a complex matter, but let's look at one aspect of it, namely the edges of the color. His aim as a painter, as we have seen, is to grant sensation without the boredom of its conveyance. He wants to defeat narrative wherever it seems to arise, which is pretty much everywhere since humans are creatures who crave a story. There is a tendency for story to slip into the space between any two figures or any two marks on a canvas. Bacon uses color to silence this tendency. He pulls color right up to the edge of his figures, a color so hard, flat, bright, motionless, it is impossible to enter into or to wonder about. There's a desolation of curiosity in it. He once said he'd like to put a Sahara desert or the distances of a Sahara in between parts of a painting. His color has an excluding and accelerating effect. It makes your eye move on. It's a way of saying, don't linger here and start thinking up stories, just stick to the facts. Sometimes he puts a white arrow on top of the color to speed your eye and denounce, and denounce storytelling even more. 
to look at this arrow is to feel an extinguishing of narrative. He says he got the idea for the arrows from a golf manual. And I know this is probably a stretch, but I was thinking of his employment of color to stop narrative in the lines you just read. The muscle of my mind was worn out. I was painting everything at once, painting until the impulse died and began again. I tended to let days scatter to bruises on a canvas. And I guess it made me wonder about your epigraph, what it meant to you and why you chose this specific quote by Eva Hess as the, as the way to introduce us to Tuckhouse. Well, let me first say that the the passage you read from Anne Carson is magnificent and um, and and feels completely um, logical to me. I think um, it makes me want to go and read the whole thing. But that idea of granting sensation through sort of translating a sensation seems exactly right. You can't, a person can't take something in one medium and shift it to another medium without doing some, um, some translating work, some, some work, you know, you can't make the same music without an instrument that you would with an instrument. So if my medium is words to describe music, I have to do some work to find those words or, you know, take your pick what the analogy is. If I'm trying to describe artwork I ha- and I'm using words, that's a lot different from using resin like Ava Hesse did. Um, the quote, the epigraph to start the book is, oh, it pleases me so much, this epigraph. The fact that it isn't black and white, that it isn't, um, that it, perhaps even built into her quote is that there isn't a right or wrong. Um, that it doesn't, that the edges blur, that the the box doesn't contain it, the vessel doesn't contain exactly the answer anyone wants. The cover sort of evokes that too, the, the house that seems to want to be more than a house. The, the cover artwork is, um, I, I would love to shout out to the cover artist. It's a, a woman in Albuquerque whose work I've known for a long time. Her name is Suzanne Sparge. And when I found this piece, which is called Nest, I, I was, I, I was basically exhilarated because it seemed to have everything, everything I needed. It was almost as though Suzanne had read the book, uh, distilled the poems and created this artwork though that isn't how it happened, but it, but it really felt like it went right along with the poems so exactly. And in a way that is also very open and capacious. Well, you have a poem that engages with the person who wrote the epigraph, Ava Hesse, uh, entitled instead small, rather huddled and so on. Um, and it engages with a work of hers called Repetition 19.3, which felt in conversation to me with your Donald Judd poem called Empirical Theories of a Boxmaker, which engages with Judd's 100 untitled works. They feel in conversation because Judd's work and Hesse's work are both engaged with repetition, with 
Judd's box as being more uniform and Hess's weird latex plastic shapes having more variations, but all coming from a certain core form. And we could also say perhaps that they're both in conversation with your poem about O'Keefe's Black Earth series, where she returns over and over again to the same view to paint the same place many different times. Um, on top of that, you also have a poem called Repetitions that isn't explicitly about a specific work of art. But it made me all wonder about your attraction to art that enacts repetition and then also what role repetition plays in your work if you feel like repetition is a motif or a tool that you employ. I think repetition is a tool I employ in revision more than anywhere else, um, and especially in these poems. I began the poems that now make up Took House in 2005, and the for a long time it was a, a sort of vast collection of poems that then shifted and enlarged and shrunk and um, and within those poems they were revised they were shortened uh, lengthened uh, stretched out I did I did a huge amount to the poems themselves into the collection so in that way there was a lot of repetition there's also for me repetition in the core story within this collection, the the going back, the the drinking, the appetites, the tables, even the repetition of hungers. And so what about your attraction to repetition within the work of the artists you chose? Like you say, one of the things that you're confronted with when you're doing ekphrastic poetry is why am I engaging with this specific art? It seems to me like you're drawn to artists who are drawn to the repetition of form. It might seem like that, but I think what you're seeing is a, is a selection of ekphrastic works that I made more intuitively, but I've written a lot of ekphrastic poems, not all of which deal with repetition. Mm. So partly I made that choice of what to include in the book and it, I was drawn to the ekphrastic poems that were, that had that repetition or had the minimalism or had the open-endedness, open-ended quality to them. But there, but there are a lot of other poems I've written, ekphrastic poems that are really not at all, I'm scanning in my head some of the artworks that are not at all repetitive or not much repetitive. But I also want to say that I have a a kind of extreme fascination for the artworks that almost feel like they're um, meditating or meditative maybe that are empty or open or quiet. And I would love to think that's because that's, how I am, but it's probably more a factor of that's what I need more. I don't know. Well, I was hoping I, I picked out two poems that to me felt like repetition leaped out. Uh, Let the other, and I recommend you not empty of content. Okay. Let the other. Let the other 
woman be identical let her be exhausted in pretty and soiling let her not be too lonely let her protect what she knows and let one take blood from the other let one see each later version let her never keep her eyes open let them both have a chance to be tender in the beautiful rooms let them be strangers with distance let each rearrange the heart let there be viscera and once in fact and fierce pattern. Let the hints happen little by little. Let the one scream, let there be sleeves of rain. Let her open a map and decide to move forward. Let each form from the heavy edges in the black part of night. The second poem I recommend you not empty of content is a pantoum, actually. Um, I recommend you not empty of content. When I stood and tore rocks from the edge of our porch, you saw I was otherwise empty of details, of spark. From words to cup, to hope, to wake, you called for help. From the edge of our porch, you saw I was otherwise caught in the arch of defeat. No chances to hope to wake. You called for help that day. October was visible in every direction, caught in the arch of defeat, no chances. How many times could we do this? I almost slid off that day. October was visible in every direction, taut, then shaking. Was this on your heart? How many times could we do this? I almost slid off from the place we called home. Pity the riddle, taut then shaking. Was this on your heart, your sturdy going on, your exhaustion with the place we called home? Pity the riddle, empty of details, of spark. From words to cup, your sturdy going on, your exhaustion when I stood and tore rocks. We've been listening to Lauren Camp read from her, her latest collection of poetry, Took House, so you mentioned the second poem is a pantoum, and you've talked about how uh, that is a good form for dealing with something hard or for any sort of obsession or any issue a writer can't stop thinking about. Why, why is that the case? Because it, within the form, it repeats. It allows a, uh, it's a very strict structure that allows those lines to repeat in specific places but in the process of doing that, you have to add in new content or new perspective sometimes. And so the form is both directed and, again, open-ended, again, requ requiring or allowing discovery because you don't really know what you're going to be able to or have to say when the line returns in a new position. And I will also say that pantoums are, I think they're a marvelous form. I restrain myself in using them, but uh, but I love them. I love teaching them. And I have a, a loose parameter of wishing to have a pantoum in every book. <laughs> Has that been happening so far? I, I've done pretty well. Not exact, yeah. but I'm pretty good. When I, when I think about repetition and obsession and pantoums, for dealing with something hard because of the repetition in the form, 
you mentioned the repetition that's also happening in, in the, the story within the book. Um, because there's the, there's poems that appear regularly in the collection about a fraught relationship or perhaps about different relationships. It isn't specified who the people are, but it feels like there's a deep subterranean story between lovers, but we have access not to the story, but to these brief snapshots and I, and I think of Alison Bennis White's blurb that calls these poems precise and yet mysterious and say these poems aren't like the interior, interior life, but are the interior life, which of course is often mysterious even to the person themselves having the interior life. Um, so I guess I just wanted to hear about choices you make in the portrayal of this relationship or these relationships across the book, because it feels like it's a it's a balance of precision and specificity and then an intentional non-specificity because there's an absence of, of time of names of obvious story, but there's a repetition that seems to lure us to the edge of story or to tempt us with our desire for story. I wasn't interested in telling a straight story. I think I've never been interested in that. And poetry as a form gives me a way to focus into something, some particle of a story, some some corner of a composition rather than a whole thing. I don't think I... I think in that macro view and certainly with this book as it went through revisions and shaping the story stayed consistent the way I told it didn't get more or less specific but my ability to layer other things into it grew as as I continued to work on it and I guess I I also want to say that um, I, I didn't, if it hasn't been clear, I didn't really have any education in poetry at all. I was not really exposed to it by much of anybody uh, other than perhaps the logical Dr. Seuss and uh, James Whitcomb Riley, which my mother read me. But but really nobody ever said, here's a poem, here are poems, this is, this is a form, this is how you could write or you, you could read or anything. And when I discovered it, it was this marvelous space that gave me feeling, feel it, like an emotional way to interact with material that wasn't first a single fact and then another fact and then another fact, um, sensations of feelings and experience. Well, when I think about what you've just said, and also, again, the, the Alison Bennis White blurb about your work being precise and mysterious, I also think of the many ways your poems, particularly the ones about your father, um, the books the poems you wrote in 100 Hungers about his childhood in Iraq prior to being a refugee, a book where you had to 
evoke his childhood as much through imagination as memory because of his silence around his life before. But also think about silences and spaces beyond or before language with your poems about your father's dementia. And then similarly, your your last book, Turquoise Door, you're writing into an imaginative, imaginative space about a real person, the art patron Mabel Dodge. So you're imagining your way into a real past. Um, you're not lining up facts. And in both of these cases, you only have a limited number of facts, in fact. So I was wondering about the role of, a, of the imagination in relationship to memory and history as you engage with real people or real events of other people or your own life and your attraction to that, um, that space. Maybe it's a, a, an undefined space where you're sort of mixing um, the things that you know and the things you can't know. I believe I live in that space and grew up in that space of imagination, um, that that space is, is comfort to me, is surprise. It's, it's everything. It's, it's where the color is. It's, I don't know. I've been thinking in thinking about this interview, I've been thinking about my childhood for some reason and how little memory I have of specific things in my childhood. I have some, but I believe I lived this very reasonable suburban childhood completely in my memory, in my imagination as much as possible. Um, I was a creative child with no, no support for that, no encouragement for that, and and no nobody to stop me from it. And I was perfectly happy there. I also have a very sort of active sleep life, not always positive, but again, the space of imagination and of uncertainty. I'm drawn to it. I'm curious about it. I like trying to take it apart and make sense of it. I like the fact that maybe I can't take it apart and make sense of it. I love that you say it's the place of color, the unnameable space. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, there's this line that sticks with me from 100 Hungers where you say, how do you live in silence? You talk to absence. And, And that line feels like it brings us to this unnameable space or place that a lot of the artists you've chosen seem to be drawn to as well. For instance, I'm thinking of the ekphrastic poem you did about the work of Robert Rauschenberg called Bet on the Wall, where instead of using a canvas, he uses material from his own bed to paint upon. And this quote-unquote bed, his bed, is hung on a wall like, uh, like a painting and it becomes sort of a self-portrait. And that sort of feels connected to your poems about this relationship, um, connected to the way you put a bed on a wall and took house, as if you're putting sheets and quilts and pillowcases up for us to examine of the lives of these two people. Um, and I guess I maybe this would be a good place for you to read us a couple of those poems so we can hear some of the poems that are more deeply engaged with uh, the relationship. 
Um, how about splendid gin and fiction? I like the poems you're picking. Oh, you by do? The way. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Splendid. Yes, it was splendid, praying wholly with liquor to the 12 bar pattern of his tragic. Our hands and fingers, the interior weather, such latent languor. The waiter was never far from the mouth of our error and ready to please us, to place fuller glasses beside us, filled with disorder. Over and over we sat at a table without days, our lips scarlet with logic and random syntax. We sat through summer's collar, sat through sweet mustard and drought, my soft opinions, his signatures, then winter's slaughtering wind spread on the desert. We perfected ours, our small infinities and unremarkable habits, the flesh, our last words. Of course, at some point, we at the table were reminded only of breathing, that echo and echo. Gin. The day's first gin is throat dry, sharp and pure. Ice still whole when he gets another. He drinks until the angle of half-light is lost, until the glass is asleep by the door and the glass empty and the glass carried. The mind floats and widens beyond anything biological. The mind with its musical light never surfacing, the never mind infused in an abyss deeper than the mind until his body is only this, and fleeing the body within his body, and the damage is also parched like this. Fiction. Every Wednesday he is mourner and bitter in time beneath pardon. Long glasses fill to the neck until the table is liquid. His voice is a hand cupping the ocean. He is shirking his love. He is loving his love. He says love to a wife, but it isn't love that has fallen into the glass. It's a mouth wearing a fiction, a mouth already dry. He sighs and says he'll be home on his white legs, but lands instead where he's willing to feather and wing each passage, where he swallows each way of pretending. Been listening to Lauren Camp read from Took House. So when you're when you're writing about your father, uh, you're writing both based on what you know and into his um, your imagination of his past. But when you're writing about these unspecified people, like what you just read, do you do you how do you relate the the I for you? Do you feel like these are persona poems or? Do you feel like they're biographical or do you feel like that's not even a question that enters your head when you're writing them? I feel like these poems began from a truth or a series of truths or potential truths and really what they, what drives them is a curiosity about, um, personal psychologies, um, what makes people operate? 
how and why do they do what they do, even if they don't know, and whether that people encompasses me too, probably. Um, I think within Tookhouse, there's a lot of a lot of the newer things are the psychology, the later psychology or the later witnessing of what what the storylines are. Well, these these poems give us a taste of two motifs that repeat through the book, and one is that of alcohol, and the other um, that we get a tiny glimpse of here at the end of the last poem is that of birds. And Daniel Simon at World Literature Today links these two in his review. He talks about the Greek mythological term called homophagia, which is the eating of raw flesh in the context of Dionysian cult worship. And Simon said that he felt like it was difficult not to think of Dionysus of wine and fertility, but also of birds of prey that sort of become symbols of voracious appetite for flesh torn apart and also reference Dionysus himself being dismembered by the Titans. And I, I wondered how that review and that sort of encapsulation or one way of uh, one lens through which to look at your new collection, how that felt. Did that, did that ring true to you, this idea of um, homophagia and, and sort of a wine infertility um, connection? I feel like there was definitely a sense of excess to those poems in a way that, I'll be honest, completely a- appealed to me. Um, that how far can you push? How how much how much can you bring the camera in to show um, excess appetites? even if those are true, but just how, how extreme those appetites are and that, um, that complete desire for pleasure or for self-satisfaction. Well, I wanted to spend a, a, a minute longer with each of these, uh, with hunger and with birds. So starting with birds, the book has ravens, hawks, owls, and eagles but Tookhouse isn't a particularly bird-centric book in the sense that we see birds in 100 hungers also. We buzzards, vultures, hawks, and pigeons. You also have a poem called Redbird, Agnes Martin Speaks, and you have a quote in another poem of the Kafka line, A cage went in search of a bird. So really birds abound in your poetry in general, not specifically in Tookhouse, but certainly Tookhouse is a good example of a of a book where birds are certainly prominent and flying through. Uh, so w- what is that about? <laughs> um, I, I live in the desert and I live in a rural farming valley. And what's th- that by itself is not necessarily interesting. I mean, it's extremely interesting to me, but it's not necessarily what would draw me to this, but I grew up in the suburbs of New York, uh, of New York City. Um, So my understanding of place was urban and suburban. And I find it just magical here, just the spaciousness of it, the, the life 
of it, the the life of the critters of the sky, the clouds. Um, so I think for me, 26 years in on being here, I'm still completely captivated by what is moving and flying around me. And I, I am sure it was flying around me in the suburbs too, but somehow I didn't see it. I didn't, I don't think I grew up with in a very aware family or very aware of what was around me. I didn't grow up with uh, any examples, any, I don't even know, I don't even know how to describe it, but anybody, I anybody who would have pointed those things out to me who would have cared. Yeah. Well, obviously a person even writing really different collections in your case, one collection about your father's childhood in Iraq, another about an art patron in New Mexico, and then your nearly 100 uncollected dementia poems, which some of which you're going to read for the bonus audio archive. Those don't have a lot of similar content, but you're the same person. So there's going to be some repetition that happens inevitably around theme and image. But I also wondered if some of that repetition might also be because you often are writing these collections at the same time. At least some of these, some of these books are, are being put together, um, together, not sequentially. Is that, is that right? Yeah. That's exactly true. I began Took House uh, in 2005, as I said, and had various points where I just had to semi-abandon the project because I didn't know where I was going with it. Or I don't know, I was waiting for some kind of insight. So in between that time, I mean, my first collection came out in 2010. So everything has been happening, not everything simultaneously, but, but things happen alongside in parallel furrows maybe. And I, and that's how I work in general. That's, that's comfortable to me to have too many things going on and not to be following a direct path, really following a one, one foot in front of the other one step, one poem, I love the idea of it. It just doesn't seem to suit my personality. Well, I wanted to I wanted to also linger for a second on the recurring theme of hunger or appetite and Daniel Simon's use of the term homophagia about the recurrence of birds of prey looking for food, but also the way you find your way into your father's Iraqi childhood through food in 100 Hungers how your radio show was called Audio Saucepan. And this book, Took House, prior to part one of the book, there's a poem called Appetite. So I was hoping you could talk to us about hunger, appetite, and saucepans in general in your work. (laughs) But also, but why you set this one poem, Appetite, apart from the other. So what work you see this poem doing as a gateway into the collection since it's happening before, in a way, before the collection has started or as the way into the collection. So talking, I want to talk about hungers in 100 hungers first. As you've mentioned, I didn't have a lot of information for my father 
In fact, I had none from my father on his childhood directly. And what I did have was silence. What I had was, to go a little further, was the repetition of silence from him, the endlessness of silence on his childhood, which might be very typical of, of anybody fleeing a country, starting over again after a difficult home situation or just needing to start over in a new world for whatever reason. But my father didn't talk about his childhood. So what, because I wanted to write his story and I was fairly determined about that, I had to take the information I had, some of which could be gathered from research but none of that could tell me his story. So the information I had was food. It was spices. It was not full recipes, but but uh, maybe table settings and gatherings and meals and individual foods and how we consumed them. So in in that book, food is very prevalent because it is the pretty much the only solid thing I had that and maybe some prayers and my father as a, as an adult, as the way I knew him as my father and trying to sort of disassemble the parts of him I knew to make sense of what he might've been like as a child. And then your hunger to know. Yeah, absolutely. My, my desperate need, like a, a kind of starvation to know, a kind of, you know, I would take anything. I mean, in that book, I was able very carefully to sort of pluck out a couple of small details from my father and they are in that book verbatim. I mean, that's how desperate I was to know and to hold these parts of him. Uh, the little bit he could tell me, I think he didn't have, I, I think he had blocked it for so long that he really didn't have a memory of that. But he, he didn't, of course, didn't tell me that. My father was not a direct, a direct and easy person to get to know and and not direct in his information by any means. So the way that the information or the lack of information would come to me would be anger. And ultimately in unpacking that, I decided it was probably that he, very likely that he did not remember. And so it was more a frustration with himself. So talk to us about appetite, both in a general sense in Took House, but more specifically about the placement of the poem Appetite? I feel like a poem that goes at the start of a book and is separated has to be, it has to offer something special, something more, something Maybe in this case, what I'm hoping for is some clues or some gathering of some of the details I hope you'll see later in the book. Can we hear it? Of course. Appetite. 
And now in the useless unceasing, there is a heart in one part of town where there is a table that is most like a cliff, a place to render fewer potentials. There is a glass near a bottle that will offer what she asks. In that room or the next is an intimate slowing where the woman put down her shield and took out her heart. She put it on the table and looked at the table under the eye of everything that could go wrong, everything that did. Each direct chance and the taking of it. Now she tries to explain the way the past wouldn't finish, that the heart was a stipulation, the shade of her hunger, his palm on her marrow. It is the largest muscle and she let it take over. She let it. Been listening to Lauren Camp read the opening poem from Took House. So the the repetition of the word heart and the word table also seems to bring the hunger for food and the hunger for desire together. And the lovers in this book are often meeting not in a bed or a bed on a wall, but at a table. And I I wanted to ask you about another space, the house in the in the title, Took House but also the picture that we've talked a little bit about of the strangely inhabited dreamlike house on the cover, a painting of a house that is fittingly called Nest. Um, so what does the title of the collection mean to you is, is my main question, because when I first heard it prior to reading the book, I immediately thought of dispossession of a taken house or of a took house of a refugee like your father who can't go back who's been robbed of their nest, of their home. But I didn't really have that sense of that being the meaning when I was reading the collection. So I was curious about Took House. Well, I will talk a little uh, sort of around the title because I, I've been asked this question by others. Um, I've been asked the question in a variety of ways. Is it a real place? Is it the name of a place? And it's not that. I My short and maybe a little flip answer to the question is it's the past tense of a verb. And that's, that's in fact the truth for me. It's, I think the the more important word to me, the word, the two words together are incredibly important to me and their mystery, their possibilities, the fact that it is not a direct and easy reading of them is important to me. But to me, the the weighted word is took. And took in the way of being the past tense of take and take with the the definitions of the many definitions of of possessing, grabbing, stealing, maybe um, subtracting all the different. I'd probably encompass all the different ways that you could interpret took or take, and then house 
earlier today, I was thinking about it, how it's, there's always a difference between house and home, that they are different things. They could be the same, but they are not always the same. They, they are sometimes entirely different. So, uh, you know, what a house is a container as a, not even as a safe place, but as a container. Uh, and I think that's all I want to say about it because I, I could, I can only define the title for you explicitly if I tell you a very specific storyline and I've never wanted to do that. Well, there are two sections to the book, the, the exact color of welcome, which we've mentioned. And then the second section days at zero and a movement from color and welcome to dusk and dark rooms and cold weather. And I was hoping maybe you could just talk briefly about days at zero as a section. Um, and maybe your thoughts around collecting certain poems in that section. The way that I assemble collections is on a giant table that I have in my studio. Uh, it's a table that I've used for making art. That's what it, that's what it was initially for, for spreading out large pieces and patterns. And it has been repurposed as a table mostly for collecting a lot of junk most of the time, a lot of piles, but, um, but also for assembling collections when I do it, other people do it on the floor and I do it here and I set up the poems and I go over and over and over them with the help of my husband, who's got a very good eye for things and also is a very different person than me. And sees different connections and we spend days usually he's pretty integral to the process putting together poems re uh matching poems re reshifting which sounds redundant but it it actually isn't like where we'll walk around and I'll move a poem around and then he will come back and shift it somewhere else and uh it's a it's a brutal process and ultimately has proven very useful to me. And so that last section, which is the which is uh, the second section, which is a longer section by a bit, has some of everything, I think, some of both the uh, some of the three separate elements that, make up the book, which is predator prey poems and ekphrastic poems and this this core storyline of the relationship. I was hoping you could introduce us to and then read the poem Inward, Downward, White, Gray, Black, because it somehow manages to be an ekphrastic poem, but also an engagement with the relationship in the book and also part of the gesture of what feels like an inward and downward movement in this second section? I think this poem is the most unlike the others of the ekphrastic pieces, perhaps because it's an, based on an artwork that is very early compared to the others, that is not 
contemporary art that is not minimalist art that is it's based on a Pete Mondrian uh, oil on canvas called composition number two it's from 1920 and the poem itself is called inward downward white gray black the box in the middle opens a door to the pond in his backyard where no one ever quarrels. The sun elbows the red fence with loose gatepost in the back alley and tender cold air from the side yard comes to meet the sweet and endless blooms. Been listening to Lauren Camp read from Took House. It was hard to decide. I mean, it was very... It was very logical in my sort of intuitive way of thinking to decide which ekphrastic poems would go in the book, but it was hard to let go of some. Like, I felt like they were they were all children or friends or something. I was like, oh, but I have to let go of the poem about Elizabeth Murray or, oh, but how about the Basquiat poem? Or I, I only write about artwork that intrigues me and... That doesn't mean I have to like the whole, an artist's whole body of work or the artist as a person, but something that grabs me. And and it was sort of sad to leave some of those on the sidelines, say next project, maybe well, another project. Well, while we're back on the discussion of, of ekphrastic poetry and painting, um, given that you were a visual artist, I, it just made me also think of the way Gregory Pardlow, the poet who also does ekphrastic poetry, the way he described writing a poem like painting an oil painting, that you come back each time to the poem in a different headspace with something new you've read or seen or heard. And while there's this base image, you keep putting more layers on or taking more layers off. And I wondered if that resonated with you since you have the experience on both sides of both creating poems and and creating visual art. It resonates with me, but not in making art. In making art, I, and I think this is probably mostly because of the medium I was working in. The decisions were once made and once, uh, once done or begun, you kind of had to go with them or there were exponentially many hours of undoing. And, and where I see that layering of experience is really in the writing of the poems. I mean, in, in the two books we've been talking about, it's, these poems are all very, very layered by exactly what, what Pardlow's talking about, uh, experience, what I've read, what I've discovered since the last time I looked at the poems, what I've thought about how I've become a bit different from the person I was when I wrote the last draft, all of that. So for me, poetry has color and texture and a layering that I could not get in my art medium. Well, I don't know if this is, if we'd call this ekphrastic or not, but you have a deep engagement with music also as a poet and some of your visual art 
was of jazz musicians. Your first book of poems were engaged with jazz. You had a radio show that juxtaposed music and poetry. And when you were revising 100 Hungers, you very consciously would listen to certain types of music when revising certain poems. So I was hoping you could talk to us about any relationship music has to Tookhouse, but also more broadly about music in relationship to either composition or revision or any other aspects of you being a poet? I think I grew up in a really strange house. Um, I mean, it seemed very normal, but (laughs) to me, but there wasn't really music in it. And, and so my learning about so many things came as I moved away from my house, my home, what I had in my home was not silent either in my growing up home, but it wasn't musical. And so as I moved out into the world, I learned about certain musical genres that I really knew nothing about. And one of those was jazz. Um, and it came in a succession of other other genres that... Um, that I had to move through. And once I got to jazz, I thought it was the most astounding form, really. Um, something that was unpredictable, had some repetition or familiarity, some kind of sophistication, sort of unknowable sometimes very comfortable and sometimes truly not, sometimes astonishing and sometimes very straightforward. So all those things sort of gathered in me very quickly. I knew so little about jazz. And at the time I was making visual art and I was relatively new to that too. And I decided I would make art about the jazz musicians I knew. And I knew four. (laughs) Um, And, and that was it. And, and I began making portraits of these jazz musicians in my medium, which was layered fabric and thread, and then stitched. And as I was making them, I would listen to music. And so the sounds would would sort of filter through me as as colors and shapes. Not always, I, not in a super extreme way. I think some people have this synesthetic approach or, or sensation, not in a really extreme way, but they would filter through in certain ways. Some things would very clearly identify as certain colors or certain uh, compositions. And so those two things were completely entwined and I began learning more and more about music and about the field of jazz and the possibilities of jazz. The portraits continued to grow and then I sent them off on the road. Uh, They traveled around the country for about three and a half or four years to venues in 10 states in the U.S. and I still needed some way to engage with the music and At that point, I got involved with public radio and began to learn how to do a radio show and to build 
to build sounds together, to build um, to build programs that that again layered or interleaved music forms. And can you talk about? I would imagine that when you're working on a poem where you want to listen to music, that you're wanting the music to have a certain effect on the poem, on the line, or maybe on the line break. Is, is that true? Like when you're we're revising 100 Hungers and you're selecting certain music, is that because you want it to influence the words? Yeah, that's absolutely why. The words or the or the line or the length of the line. So in 100 Hungers, there are uh, poems that are about my father as a child and uh, living in my, through my imagination, but living in Baghdad. And I wanted those poems to have that cultural feel. And the way that I could think to do that, that was more than what I had innately in me was to play oud music and to revise, especially to the sound of the oud, which has this sort of mournful uh, reaching quality. So it didn't necessarily change the words, but the emphasis, the line breaks, the the way I heard the poems, the the way I the way I shaped what I was trying to say to match the place. Well, there was something you said in an interview at under a warm green linden that I really loved, and I would love to, you to elaborate on because you did mention earlier in the conversation also about the three elements of this book took house, which brought me to this or reminded me of this thing that you said in the interview where you said, when I was making art portraits of jazz musicians, which I did for more than 10 years, I would find the main image I wanted to use the musical center, if you will. Once I had that, I would build what I called a context around it. Those other elements would further my understanding or impression of the musician and or the music. I've grown to like the challenge of putting three elements together. I get to and have to make surprise connections. And I guess I wanted to hear, it sounds like you've taken something you learned from your work as a visual artist and then brought that into poetry and that it involves this idea of three. I guess I wanted you to elaborate more on that for for people who are listening sure the it's three because well i don't know why it's three it's three because that's an odd number but it's not too many but it's also that in i think in everything i'm trying to create i'm trying to move beyond what i already know what i already have figured out somewhere in my mind or in my through like in my visual sort of mind's eye even uh so the the jazz portraits that i made were all the first step was finding an image of the musician and getting copyright permission but finding an image of the musician that i wanted to use but again now that i think about it it was sort of a form of 
catchphrases, I guess, in that I was changing it into a new medium and, and making it more, I don't know, more feels a little indulgent on my part, but, but different or larger than just that portrait of the musician, but more about the music or the, the sensation, the, the, the sensation I get from the music as audience, as listener. So it wasn't enough and it wasn't even interesting to me to, to take an image and just replicate it in a series of surprising colors that was only interesting in to the part of the composition where the pictorial representation of the artist was, but the artwork had to encompass more. Is this related? I, I'm thinking of one of the classes that you offer called Fresh Eyes Making Your Writing Stronger, which seems to be for pieces that people want to strengthen that aren't quite working and techniques to do that. And one of the things that the class you say is about is clarifying images. And I, I was curious if that technique is part of, of clarifying an image or if it isn't, um, if you could talk about, if, it, if you could talk about, you know, ways to elevate a piece through clarifying an image and what that would mean. A lot of the students that I work with are beginners or emerging writers. And often what I see is they either are not clear at all or they're, or they're repetitive. And it's really funny in the context of this conversation where I'm, um, I'm really highlighting repetition and, and trying to hold it and keep it in their work often I'm trying to help them remove those redundancies or, or move away from that. Um, it's also moving from cliches. They teach me a lot, the students, because, and, and very often, I should say very often I'm working with elders, uh, who are coming to writing after full careers who want to write about their lives or just want to write. And certainly in this pandemic want to write about, anything that brings them back to a different time. But I think they show me, they remind me of all the things that I, I, that I'm, that I'm really not interested in. And that's not to say that, that they only do that, but the, extreme clarity or the, the extreme logic or like, I don't want to be willfully confusing at all. I just, it doesn't interest me to tell you something directly from page one to page 64. Yeah. I want to, I want to tell you little parts of it. I've always been the type to um, if, if, if I have to sum up a year, I'm going to tell you what I did today because today is what interests me. Or if I have to take pictures of something, if I'm taking pictures of a vacation, I'm the one taking pictures of this tiny part of a wall or, you know, something, something really macro, not 
micro, not not the whole picture. I'm not good at I'm not good at a whole picture. It doesn't interest me at all. As you mentioned earlier, you you're a poet who's become a poet outside of like an academic context. And you've become a poet through becoming a visual artist and through an engagement with music. Are there other ways that are word-based that you've become the poet that you that you are? I've learned from everybody, from everything I've read, every and I've read hundreds and hundreds of poetry books. I've read interviews and other things also, but the poetry books, the poet, the poems. Um, I I feel like I learned from all of them. I don't learn all good things. I learn sometimes the things I don't want to do, or sometimes I learn a sound I want that I've forgotten about that I needed to be reminded of, or a shape that I've moved away from, or that just. And I guess I'm using that shape in a not not a poem that is shaped but I I think of these things in I think in different ways than other people so a shape meaning that maybe the poem steps down here or maybe I've learned line breaks from people not not poem by poem not I couldn't even acknowledge specifically this taught me this but from a a wide reading and from a uh, hungry mind. Well, well, given that you have innumerable poems about your dad and his dementia, is that what we should expect from you next? Or, or do you have other projects also coming down the Lauren Camp poetic highway? <laughs> um, I am working on a couple of projects. I am, um, uh, I have been for the past few years working on poems. Really, it's now it's been more than a few years, I guess, but poems that are in some way inspired by or inhabited by the artist Agnes Martin, who considered herself an abstract expressionist, despite the fact that you might look at her work and find it very minimalist. Uh, for some reasons, including our current administration, um, I, I began to be very interested in her very spacious canvases. And she's she's entirely puzzling. So you've just given me insight into myself and my projects um, with this conversation, but perhaps that's partly why I'm I'm inspired by her. She's very unknowable. But also her canvases are um, compelling to me. And so it's it's as much a study as of me as it is, or more a study of me and of these times as it is of the artwork itself. So I'm doing that. And I'm also working hard on um, moving around and through these poems about my father's dementia and the end of his life. Do you intentionally go towards or avoid reading Agnes Martin's writing? Oh, great question. I've tried to stay away from it um, and just work from my impressions, my, my feelings about the work 
what the work does or what the work doesn't do in those moments. But I did read a, a I think the only biography of Agnes Martin, which was not at all conclusive. And I found that intriguing. Well, well let's end with a final poetry reading. Could we hear homeostasis autumn? Of course. Homeostasis autumn. A day that stayed in place inaudible from dawn to the strike of evening. Enough time to rest and plunge back across the pebbles to my pens and desk. A squash we didn't plant has come in gold across the aspen roots. Two hawks burst over, claiming a rotating sky. The desert, normally dry, emits a faint scent, the damp wisp of cedar. Water has gathered in holes we dug. This is why the pangs of time are necessary. To the east, mountains bracket the distance, releasing their images silver on blue. The whole day has nearly disappeared, and night is a ruffle about to blossom. Thank you for being on Between the Covers today, Lauren. It's been a very big pleasure. Thank you. Talking today to the poet Lauren Camp about her latest book from Tupelo Press, Took House, you've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Lauren Camp's work at laurencamp.com. And Lauren is adding a discussion of and a reading of some of her dementia poems, as well as a reading from her Arab American Award finalist, 100 Hungers. This joins bonus audio from Hanif Abdurraqib, Phil Metris, Laylee Long Soldier, Marlon James, Christina Rivera Garza, N.K. Jemison. Ted Chang, Richard Powers, Garth Greenwell, and many others. To check out the bonus material, to find out other benefits of becoming a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove, Ukulele Covers, can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.